Good morning, comrade and comrades, and uh, welcome to uh, another episode of Workers' Power here on Four Triple Z. Today on the show, we've uh, we've got uh, a Brisbane Labor History Association coming in to talk about the the history of uh, May Day or Labor Day, which uh, we, we might even discuss. Um, what w- which is the correct term? You know, is it May Day or is it Labor Day? Um, and uh, so we've got, uh, and we've got some workers' action uh, uh, from uh, you know our First Nations comrades, as well as all uh, comrades from across the continent, continent and around the globe. Right. So first off, uh, we acknowledge uh, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast, the Yuggera and Turrbal people. This land was stolen, never ceded. We pay our respects to elders, past present and emerging we also acknowledge all first nation comrades listening today we stand in solidarity with first nations people in their struggles for recognitions reparations and land rights we live and benefit on stolen land it's time to pay the rent um also a shout out to um any uh, first nations uh, comrades listening in today and uh, also um Solidarity with our, our work experience uh, um, in the background, uh, Dan, uh, who's uh, um, coming to suss out uh, what we do here at Four uh, Triple Z um, on Workers Power. Right, uh, let's uh, let's rip into uh, some uh, First Nations workers action. And uh, um, Jackson, you've got an update from uh, Carby Dreaming for us. Yeah, so uh, some interesting stuff has happened. We've got two updates here. The first one is from the 28th of April. So uh, Queensland Transport and Main Roads has relayed to Canberra that pending the outcome of the Section 9 application, they intend to begin work inside the specified area. Uh, and I realize, just realize there's no context here. Carby Dreaming is a struggle going on. It's like three hours out of Brisbane um, where they want to build a road near or through a sacred site and threaten destroying it uh, called Jaki Kundu. So the First Nations people of that area have organized to protect it. Um, yes. So, and with that context, the uh, yes, they've relayed to Canberra that pending the outcome of the Section 9 application, they intend to begin work inside the specified area. And the uh, Cubby Dreaming people have confirmed with Canberra that there has been no commitment to keep their contractors away from the sacred site for the Section 10 determination, which is already underway. Section 9 will be determined next week, and they ask their supporters to please dust off your tents and come and be prepared to come stand with us very soon and just so you get up to date watch the Kabi Dreaming Facebook page every day and this is the um, what the update that came after that from the 1st of May the Sovereign Kabi Tribal Council of Elders sat in a circle and resolved to project protect Jaki Kundu from planned desecration and destruction by the Queensland Transport and Made Roads Minister Mark Bailey and his department and their contractors. Destruction of Kabi cultural heritage is against the rights of Kabi sovereigns and against Jakarta tribal law. It is not only unlawful but an act of genocide. They hope Minister Susan Lee will act honourably to stop QTMR and they thank all the wonderful people who are ready to stand with them. Right on, yeah, that's... Uh, uh, we'll keep you up to date with uh, what's happening there. There have been uh, 
had some good communication coming out of there and um, yeah yes we'll have to get a road trip up there one of these days mm. um I, I love the sound of it a road trip but uh then organising it is incredibly <laughs> difficult and expensive, for that matter. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, good, good to see that they you know, uh, that the commitment is is there from from uh, comrades and uh, uh, to uh, stop the desecration of the land up there. Right. So let's mo- let's move on. Oh no, a bad bad news. But uh, uh, we've got a reported here on Workers Power um, uh, Calypso. There's another two Aboriginal deaths in custody. That's right, Bill. A man has died at Port Phillip Prison in Melbourne's West on Monday night, Corrections Victoria said. It's believed he suffered a medical episode. A smoking ceremony was being arranged. Separately, New South Wales authorities confirmed a 37-year-old man was found dead in his cell at Cessnock Correctional Centre on Tuesday morning. It follows the deaths of five other Aboriginal people in custody across Victoria, New South Wales and Western Australia since March 2nd. They include a man aged in his 30s at a New South Wales prison hospital and another man and a woman at Victoria's Ravenhall Correctional Centre and in custody in New South Wales, respectively. Barkinji man Anzac Sullivan, 37, died during a police pursuit in Broken Hill and a 45-year-old man died in hospital in Perth. More than 470 Indigenous people have died in detention since a 1991 Royal Commission report into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Yeah, this is our shame. They just keep coming. Yep, they just keep coming. And, uh, yes, uh, we'll, we'll be here reporting it. As painful as it is, uh, uh, it needs to be talked about and uh, we need to keep it in everyone's um, uh, conscious uh, consciousness. You know, a, a, a 37-year-old man dying in a police pursuit, you know. Well, was he probably in a stolen car or something? I, I, I shouldn't go to I'm getting exasperated uh, here, comrades. Absolutely. But I also think it's important to mention that the way these deaths are reported, it, it seems like they just died. But it's important that we place the blame on the system. Yeah. Because these deaths didn't just happen. They they were caused. Yes. Now let's let's uh, there's a, there's a really well written story that we've got coming up here uh, next uh, with uh, workers uh, taking action on May one in support of uh, Willow Grove uh, Green Bands uh, down in Parramatta. Um, that's where where I grew up uh, out there. So uh, yeah, take it away, Jackson. Yeah. So last year the CFMEU placed a green band on St George's Terrace and Willow Grove, two bu- two buildings in Sydney with great historical and sentimental value. The buildings were slated to be demolished to make way for an avenue for the new powerhouse museum. In response to the ban, the government announced that they would not demolish St George's Terrace and and instead incorporate it into the new museum. However, Willow Grove is still in the crosshairs. As a show of solidarity, the CFMEU, MUA, UWU, RAFU and many, many other unions and unionists organised in Parramatta on the 1st of May to defend the Green Ban on the destruction of the historic Willow Grove site in Parramatta, as well as a slew of other causes, including a rise in the minimum wage, the right to industry bargaining, free and properly funded public education from early childhood to uni, an immediate transition to a carbon neutral economy economy that lifts every worker into conditions of dignity and respect, and that our Indigenous comrades receive the justice long denied. 
Right on. Yeah, my comrade's got a mention in there. Yes, I know, uh, Raph, we were involved in that. And uh, so down in Sydney and, and in Melbourne, there there's a, a, a growing movement uh, to uh, start to uh, uh, celebrate uh, May Day on, on May 1st. Now, yeah, they the don't... The May 1 movement. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. It's called the May 1 movement. Now... The difference that we've got up here in in, in uh, Queensland, or and and mainly Mianjin, is that uh, we got the Labor Day on on the Monday, and that's the day that, that we got the public holiday on the Monday, and that's the day that we march. Now, there's a growing interest in in that uh, in marching on May one up here in uh, uh, Mianjin. Um, there was a lot of interest in it, and rather than um, uh, marching around in the uh, uh, ALP campaign uh, rally, uh, which is what it's turning into, and there'll be more on that later, um, we, we uh, start a separate movement that's on, on, on May 1, um, which is a real day. Hmm. Um, to commemorate and, uh, and we'll be learning why May 1 is so important in our upcoming interview that's right and we, yeah we, well that's uh, and a great uh, a segue into um, yeah our, our next interview with the Brisbane Labor History Association where we're going to uh, have a really really good discussion a- about the the history of May Day um, there, there's uh, been some, some um, interesting things and uh, and I, I, I and four triple Z yesterday, and uh, and the, you know next year uh, is writing new chapters in that book. So four triple Z to broadcast live from uh, the uh, the rally. What, a, what what an achievement! You know, really really well, well done, uh, well done me <laughs> and and the four triple Z team that I, I couldn't have done it without without everyone. But uh, well, you couldn't have done it without everyone, Jackson. Uh, Certainly not. Um, yeah, it was a great team effort from from uh, you know the the uh, four triple Z team, and uh, it, it was all about um, uh, uh, amplifying the voices of workers, and that's what we do here on four triple Z and Workers Power. Um, so so really really great to be a part of, and uh, and I could say that uh, um, with, with a fair bit of confidence that it's something that four triple Z will want to be a part of uh, um, in celebrating the Workers Day. And welcome back to Workers Power here on 4ZZZ, where you're with uh, Bill Jackson, uh, Calypso, and uh, oh, Dan, and oh, we're also joined by um, by Jeff uh, from the uh, Brisbane Labor History Association. It's a packed and studio. Sorry? It's a very packed studio. It's a very busy studio today, and uh, um, yes, so uh, we're, uh, thank you for coming in, Jeff. You're welcome, comrades. Great, great to be here. And uh, we, we t- so yes, we're going to be talking about the the history of the Brisbane Labor Day, and um, yeah, first off, we start out with the origin of the event. Yeah, so Brisbane uh, Labor Day, indeed Labor Day all over Australia, um, began its uh, its existence in the campaigns to win the eight-hour day. So uh, the initial push for the eight-hour day in Australia was led by stonemasons down in, in Melbourne, um, particularly the stonemasons working on the, um, the law faculty building at the University of... Um, at Melbourne University. Um, so, they, first of all, in the, in the 1850s, they tried to talk the um, construction bosses into agreeing to an eight-hour day, um, and when 
talks broke down on that. Um, there was one uh, British immigrant and former chartist, James Stevens, who was um, working on that construction site at Melbourne Uni, and basically he organised his co-workers um, and said, we're going to walk off. Um, and they did. Uh, they downed tools and walked off the job on the 21st of April, 1856. And they marched to Parliament House. And along the way, they were joined by um, workers from other sites, other construction sites. Um, so it was, you know, <coughs> the, the struggle for the eight-hour day, um, starting in Melbourne, uh, came out of an, um, a breakthrough by rank-and-file workers basically walking off the job. And over coming months, the employers in Melbourne agreed to reduce the working day from 10 to 8 hours with no loss of pay. Um, and so that was the, uh, the, the breakthrough in terms of the 8-hour day. And workers in the construction trades in Melbourne <clears throat> decided to mark the, the victory annually with a march and celebration. So we had the birth of what was called Eight Hours Day, uh, which is the forerunner of Labor Day. In Mianjin uh, and in Ipswich, um, the stonemasons launched a similar campaign in 1857, so the, the following year. Um, oh, go Ipswich, what a progressive yeah, little it, town it, it is. It kicked it off, actually. There was a worker in Ipswich who went by the name of Yaka. And we don't actually know who Yaka really was, but he wrote to the, um, the press under the name of Yaka. And in February 1857, Yucca wrote a, a letter to the main uh, newspaper in Brisbane, Mianjin, putting the case for the eight-hour day. Um, and with a reduced working day, Yucca wrote, we will be able to mix a little study and a little relaxation with our common goals. Um, and the campaign that um, Yucca and his comrades kicked off gained momentum after a meeting in September 1857. Um, where the workers there unanimously passed a resolution basically declaring that they would adopt the eight-hour system um, because it was conducive to health and mental improvement. Um, one worker at that meeting, a guy called James Spence, actually made the argument that by reducing the working day from 10 to 8 hours, it would reduce drunkenness in Mianjin and Ipswich. Uh, his argument being was in those extra two hours of, of work, the uh, the workers got particularly thirsty. Yeah. Right? So if they gave them two less fewer hours to work, uh, they would be uh, less inclined to to get on the grog. Wasn't exactly a convincing <laughs> argument, but was one of the arguments. Sounds good, huh? Yeah, <laughs> I like um, it. So anyhow, at that meeting, they resolved um, uh, that they would give the bosses warning, um, and that they would, if if the bosses didn't agree, they would simply impose the eight hour day um, from the first of January, eighteen fifty eight. Um, as it turned out, the 1st of January came and went um, without a change in hours. And in February, uh, Yucca wrote to the press again, explaining that the workers uh, would not impose the reduction until the winter months. But um, as it turned out, things moved rather faster than Yucca had anticipated, because on the 3rd of April, a notice appeared in the, uh, the local press declaring that from the following Monday, work in the building trades would commence at 8am and finish at 5pm with one hour off for lunch. Um, and so it proved to be the case. From the Monday the 5th of April 1858, uh, um, workers in the construction trades around Mianjin and the surrounding districts worked an eight-hour day. So they won it in... Um, in Melbourne in 1856, and, and the construction workers won it in uh, Mianjin and Ipswich and South East Queensland generally in 1858. Seven years later, uh, and this gets us to the, the celebration of the day annually, 
they decided that they needed to celebrate this victory um, because seven years later it was well and truly entrenched. Um, there was no going back. They had their eight hours. So they decided it was a, a worthwhile thing to celebrate each year. Um, but there seems to have been some confusion because, as I just explained, they actually won the day on, on at the beginning of April, but when they decided to celebrate it, they, they settled on the 1st of March, which was the Welsh St David's Day. Uh, as the date for the celebration. So Brisbane's first eight hours day was held on the 1st of March 1865. So the march on the weekend uh, marked the 157th year since the first Labor Day event in, in, in Brisbane. Um, and in only two of those years has there not been a march. Um, last year because of COVID and in 1942 because of the, the Second World War. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the, uh, the the workers, the different groups of workers involved in the 19th century uh, around this. In some accounts of the history, uh, it's implied that in those early years, the eight-hour working day was limited to workers with trade skills in the construction industry. Well, this wasn't actually the case. Um, they certainly kicked it off. But workers across many sectors began agitating for the shorter day, and some groups were successful. A week after the first march in 1858, a letter appeared in the press supporting eight hours for women um, in, the, um, in the clothing manufacturing industry in Mianjin. Um, and in the same year, the blacksmiths demanded the eight-hour day. Perhaps the most impressive story um, came from the railway navvies. In late um, October 1865, Workers building and, and repairing the railway line from Ipswich out to Toowoomba and then west from Toowoomba to Dolby walked off the job. Again, a, a workers' initiative, not coming from the leadership. They walked off the job, insisting they would not return until they had won uh, an eight-hour day with a wage of eight shillings per day. Um, and they, I mean, they walked, this, as I said, late October. They had good reason for their demand at the time, and I, and I checked the figures, um, it was 43 degrees uh, Celsius in in the sun. So no 43 wonder, degrees. 43 mm. degrees. So no wonder they were uh, motivated to say, no, yeah. this, is, this is too much. Yeah. We want an eight-hour working yeah. day. So there would have been people suffering from heat stroke Absolutely. while working those yeah. long hours. And you also have to remember that a lot of these workers uh, doing these manual labouring jobs uh, had come from the UK. Uh, and, and a lot of these guys on this on this job they were fairly recent uh, migrants from the UK. So, so their bodies wouldn't have adjusted. Yep, they're yeah. coming from the UK. And they're wearing wool. Yep, and they, that's right, and they're working wool. in the sun, wool. 43 degrees. Yeah. yeah, That's a serious health risk. Absolutely. So they walked off the job, um, and up to, up to three, uh, 300 of them paraded through the streets of Toowoomba chanting eight hours work and eight shillings wages. And within um, two days, work along the entire line had stopped. Um, and they went along the line and they pulled out every group of, of workers working on that um, project. And they actually formed a group called the Working Men's Committee and they issued a manifesto calling on fellow workers throughout the colony to fall in and join the eight hours movement so that a 10 hour day would never be heard of again. Um, and they declared that they would not end the strike until their hours were reduced. And part of their manifesto read, we do not live for ourselves alone. We live that posterity, as well as ourselves, may reap the benefits of our labours. 
And after a week on strike, they won. They went back to work with the eight-hour day. They didn't get their increase in um, wages, but they won the most important thing for them, and that was a reduction in their working day. Um, so here's a group of unskilled, so-called unskilled workers, not with trade skills, but manual labourers, uh, winning the eight-hour day. Um, and similarly, in 1876, the labourers at the Brisbane Dry Docks uh, walked off the job um, and struck until they uh, won the eight-hour day as well. So the important point here is that it's not just the, 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 the tradespeople in the construction industry who had the eight-hour day. Um, other groups were coming out and, um, and going on strike and, and agitating for it and, in some cases, winning it. So uh, momentum begin to, began to pick up um, for... Um, all workers to have a, a, a reduction in, in, in the working day. Um, just another little bit of the history that's worth mentioning, um, the origins of ma marching to the exhibition ground. You know, uh, this weekend the march uh, ended at the exhibition grounds and, and that's been the case in, in, in recent times. And that actually is, there's a long history of that. In fact, uh, the exhibi exhibition grounds has been the destination for Labor Day marches in Brisbane uh, for most of the history. There have been some some parts of the history where people have marched to somewhere else. There were a few years back in the 90s where we marched to Musgrave Park. Uh, there were a few years where we went to Albert Park up, up the top of Brisbane. Um, some years we went to Roma Street Parklands after it was built. For most of the history, exhibition, the exhibition grounds has been the destination. Um, and that started, in, in what I've been able to ascertain, that first started in 1878. Uh, so the committee that decided on, on, on marching to the exhibition grounds in 1878 uh, included delegates from the stonemasons, the ironworkers, the carpenters, the plasterers, the labourers, the dry dock men, the quarrymen and the shipwrights. So again, it, it emphasises the point that there were uh, skilled tradespeople there, but there were also labourers from the docks, from the railways and so on, um, and they were all involved. But the, the, the most prominent absence, it seems to me, um, is there were, there were no uh, women workers represented. I did notice when you were reading that all out. I was <laughs> I was waiting for you to say the women workers. Yeah, no. So there, there were that that those early committees and those early labour days. There was no representation of women workers, and um, and there were prominent groups of women workers, particularly in retail. Um, the so they, they called them the shop girls, and also in the factories making clothes, dresses, and so on. Um, and they called them the factory girls. So Jeez, even back then. Uh um, retail workers needed a, a militant fighting union, <laughs> That's hey? right, yeah. So even though it had been raised right back in the early days with that letter to the press, um, it wasn't really until the, uh, the beginnings of the 1890s with the formation of the Brisbane Women's Union that you, you got a concerted push for a reduction of hours for, for women workers. And there was also a Royal Commission that looked into the conditions and hours of work uh, including those groups and lots of evidence came out about the appalling conditions and so on that women had to work in. Um, but it actually took even longer um, uh, for women to appear in the march. In 1903, um, a person, presumably a woman, who went by the name of Comrade Mary, uh, wrote a letter to the worker newspaper declaring, someday it will not be a one-sexed procession 
Brisbane women unionists will march in the ranks, each woman carrying a flag. Um, and it, but it would actually take five more years for that to happen. As far as I can discover, the first year that women participated in the Brisbane eight-hour day march was in 1908, when the Women Workers' Union entered afloat with a very clear class message. Uh, an article in the worker titled Women to the Front reported that um, a lorry, um, a vehicle, was converted into a sweater's den. So the sweaters were the, the, the employers, the exploiters of, of labour. A sweater's den with women and girls toiling at their machines while in their midst, seated in luxurious idleness and bedizened with jewellery, was the sweater lady. So they're making a clear class point, a clear class class distinction. struggle. Yeah, between the women workers um, and the the uh, the well to do the ruling class, the well to do women who were benefiting from the the products of these women's labour. Um, so this was the first time for Brisbane, 1908, but it wasn't the first time for Australia. In Melbourne, in the same year, women tobacco workers marched with their union. Um, in previous years, in Queensland. Women in the local Labor League in Chartist Towers, of all places, had marched in the local procession, while in Western Australia, the Taleresses Union had previously marched um, in, the, in the Labor Day parade. Um, but in Mianjin itself, 1908 represents the first year that we actually see women marching in the, in the procession. And presumably, Comrade Mary would have been one of them. Uh, I would, I would imagine so. Yes. Again, we don't know exactly who Comrade Mary was, but um, yes, I, I'm pretty sure she would have been there in, in the in the ranks. So, um, the other important part of the history is is the shift from March to May, because as I said, this was these these rallies and marches were occurring on the uh, beginning of March, um, and there was a shift. Uh, from the 1st of March to the 1st of May, which brought the event into line with the creation of an international May Day. And earlier in the program, you were, you were talking about the 1st of May movement and so on, and the, and the push to go back to the, to the 1st of May. So it's interesting to look at this history, uh, how it came to be an event at the beginning of, of May. So it stems from... Um, in a sense, the internationalisation of the workers' movement in Australia. So the idea of an international day of workers' union, uh, unity dates from uh, a conference of American and Canadian trade unions in, in 1884. Uh, and they set the 1st of May 1886 as the day that workers would commence strike action for the eight-hour day. Um, and the interesting point is that this idea of announcing a day and just declaring it as the day that workers would work eight hours was actually taken from the Australian experience. So Australia, Australian workers pioneered that notion, that tactic of just saying, right, this is the day. If the employers don't agree, we're going to work eight hours anyhow. And so the Americans and Canadians adopted this idea but made it the 1st of, of May 1886 as the day that this would, would start. Um, and 1st of May then became an established international day at the inaugural Congress of the Second International, the, the grouping of international socialist organisations that, that occurred in Paris in 1889. So after discussing the campaign in America, the delegates in Paris declared, there shall be organised a great international demonstration at a fixed date. 
so that on the same agreed day in every country and in every town, the workers shall call upon the state for legal reduction of the working day to eight hours. In view of the fact that a similar demonstration has been decided upon by the American Federation of Labor for the 1st of May 1890, this day is adopted for the international demonstration. Uh, so you see in this resolution a kind of amalgamation of an economic demand for a reduction of the working day uh, with uh, an internationalist perspective, which was one of the defining features of the socialism of that time. Now, in, in Mianjin and Australia more broadly, um, the internationalist worldview by people on the so-called left was, was very distorted and compromised by, by the racialized attitudes of labour movement leaders like William Lane. Um, nevertheless, a transnational approach to solidarity appealed to many workers in, in Australia. Um, who could see the value in, a, in broad worker unity around, uh, around and against the global power of capital. Um, so this was evident in 1889 when Australian unions raised a massive £30,000 for the striking London dock workers, um, which was an injection of funds that ultimately uh, allowed the dock workers to continue on with their struggle and win. Um, so £30,000 is an enormous amount. I did some figures and that, that comes to around $4 million in today's money. So Australian workers donated $4 million to support their comrades on the docks in London. Solidarity. Yeah. And so you can see this internationalism emerging in the, in the Australian movement. So, yes, you get in, in the eight, late 1880s and the early 1890s this in, international perspective coming into the labour movement. There'd always been a strong relationship with the British uh, trade unions because that's where a lot of the, the skilled workers had come from, but you get this new internationalist perspective that was coming in as, as part of um, socialist ideas coming into the, the workers' movement in Australia. One of the, one of the crucial events um, um, that, that Jackson just reminded me of off air was the Haymarket Massacre. In, um, in Chicago. So I mentioned the struggle in America for the eight-hour day. Uh, 1886, I think it was, um, there was a, um, a large demonstration of workers um, in Haymarket Square in, in Chicago, um, which led to a major confrontation with police. Um, a bomb went off. Uh, it, to this day, it, it no one really knows for certain uh, who was responsible for that. But a number of people were injured and a number of cops were um, injured and, and killed. Um, and an, uh, an, uh, it was basically used as a pretext to arrest uh, anarchist workers who were involved in um, that movement at the time. And they were put on trial um, and some of them were uh, executed. That event, in terms of uh, the socialist groupings in Australia at the time, including here in Mianjin, had a profound uh, impact. Um, and I think it cemented this, this notion that workers of the world uh, had, had one cause. Uh, and so you get this uh, spread of this internationalist perspective amongst the workers' movement. And as I was saying before the break, um, this had a, a, an appeal to particularly workers who didn't have uh, trade skills because if you didn't have trade skills, the only thing you could really rely on to improve your situation uh, was your own organisational capacity 
and the capacity for solidarity from other workers. So this notion of a transnational workers' movement um, uh, had a lot of appeal. So it's not surprisingly that it's not surprising that you get uh, workers without trade skills being at the forefront of this um, movement to to recognise May Day as the as the as the Labor Day in um, in Mianjin and indeed uh, the first place in this country where May Day became the the day of of, of workers um, um, coming together. Uh, and celebrating and demanding improvements was the striking shearers and um, roustabouts and other workers in Barcaldon in 1891. Um, so the first May Day in Australia was um, was held by those uh, striking workers. Um, and the press reported that uh, 1,340 workers, 618 of them on horseback, assembled at their strike camp outside Barcaldon and this is on the 1st of May 1891 and they proceeded through the streets of Barcaldon behind the banner of the Australian Labor Federation uh, and the press reported that in the procession uh, every civilised country and of course uh, that's a very loaded word uh, because it, in their minds that excluded a lot of a lot of people and a lot of workers but um, Nevertheless, they said that every civilised country was represented uh, in that there were Russians there, there were Swedes there, there were French workers, Danish workers and so on. Um, and, the, and the press report said that this shows that Labor's cause is won the world over, foreshadowing the time when the swords shall be turned into ploughshares and liberty, peace and friendship will knit together the nations of the earth. So that's 1891 and that's again workers themselves taking the initiative and holding the first May Day uh, rally in March in, in Australia. Two years later, in 1893, Mianjin unions shifted their procession from March to May uh, with a view, um, as expressed in the, in the paper, of getting more into harmony with the labour movement through the world. So, 1891 in Barcaldon, 1893 in Mianjin. Um, we get um, May, the beginning of May, and particularly the first of May, May Day, being the day where this uh, this event occurs. Um, the change of date, however, didn't bring about a, a change of name. It was still known as the Eight Hours Day. Um, so, in, in in keeping with the international struggles for a shorter working day. Um, which was a focus on eight hours, the name remained the eight hours day. Um, but by the, uh, by the 1900s, it was increasingly being referred to as Labor Day. And there were two reasons for this shift. On the left, I think activists were arguing the name needed to be broadened to reflect the wider concerns and aspirations of workers, and especially given the fact that many workers by that stage had already won eight hours. Um, so... Uh, for example, in 1916, uh, a, a left-wing uh, worker and trade unionist, Norman Freeman, wrote to the Labor press arguing for the change of name. Eight hours day, he contended, typifies conservatism in the ranks of organised labour, and no such element must be allowed to encumber the glorious movement which works for the emancipation of the workers. And he supported the... Uh, I like the sounds of him. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think he was all right. Uh, and he supported the, the change of name from Eight Hours Day to, to Labor Day. But ironically, 
The Conservatives were also happy to embrace this change, for it allowed an ambiguity to creep into the meaning of the day. Calling it Labor Day uh, rather than May Day allowed the event to be closely associated with the Labor Party and not just the Labor movement as a broad movement of workers. Uh, indeed, there were, and in fact still are, Labor Party people who claim it as their day. Uh, so, from a left perspective, Freeman would have been better served arguing for a change to May Day in keeping with the rest of the world. Um, but anyhow, from May, the, May 1922, Adow's Day in Brisbane became Labor Day, and that name has been with us ever since. And the catalyst for that change, the final kind of straw that forced the change in name, was the winding up of the old Eight Hours Day Committee and a new Trades Hall Council taking over the running of Labor Day. And here is uh, here's the beginning of this history of, of uh, conflict and contestation uh, in, in Labor Day. And um, I want to concentrate on that a bit because I think it's important to understand that despite the rhetoric that this is... Um, uh, supposedly a day of worker un unity, uh, it's always been a day of um, ideological and political contestation and that was there right from the beginning of the change to the name Labor Day. And the transfer of control um, uh, from the old committee to the Trades Hall Council um, came about, there was an attempt to, well, moves were made to amalgamate three union organisations at the time, three separate bodies. There was the Brisbane Industrial Council, which had renamed itself the Trades Hall Council. There was the Trades Hall Board, which was a body that basically controlled the, the Trades Hall um, building. Uh, and there was the eight-hour day committee. And the last two were quite conservative bodies. Um, and the interim committee for the new council... Just, just to, there's, yeah. there's things like that still happening. Yes. Right now... Pretty confusing. Uh, you use Ipswich as the example. Uh -huh. There's, there's, a, there's a, a, a board that, that manages the, the, um, the trades hall. Yeah. And then it's a, a QCU Ipswich looks after the rally. Yes. So, you, yeah, you've got these two different uh, organisations in the same yes. space, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, in, in the case of Mianjin, the Trades Hall Board and the 8-Hour Day Committee uh, were um, organisations very closely aligned with the Labor Party uh, and with the unions that were close to the Labor Party, particularly the Australian Workers' Union. Um, uh, and that's a history that we probably all know something about. Um so the tr there was a new trades and labour um, trades hall council established um, that tended to have a more progressive outlook, um, and uh, essentially made the other two organisations very nervous. Um, so one of the sticking points for all organisations merging into the trades hall council uh, was the rules of the new council debarred sitting members of parliament from holding positions. And this particularly upset a fellow called George Lawson, who was the president of the eight-hour days committee. And he was al also happened to be a member of the... a Labor member of the Legislative Council, the upper house in the Queensland parliament. Um, more generally, the Conservative unions aligned with the eight-hour committee and were reluctant to join a peak organisation where, where more progressive perspectives were dominant and which were often critical of the Labor Party. 
Um, so, but the trades hall progressives stuck to their guns and they appealed directly to the rank and file of the unions by calling a mass meeting in June 1920. And up to 400 workers turned up and after a lively discussion they fully backed the new trades hall council. So as Labor Day approached in 1921, there was still no resolution to this conflict. The Trades Hall Council formed a May Day committee, and note the name, they wanted to, to, to use May Day as the term. They formed a May Day committee, while the old Eight Hours Day committee, which renamed itself the Brisbane Labor Day Committee, still existed as a separate body. So you had two, two bodies. Each body had its own set of union affiliates. In the end, each group organised its own event. The Trades Hall Council organised a May Day gathering uh, on the 1st of May and the Labor Day Committee held a march and sports day at the exhibition grounds on the 2nd of May. And it was that one, of course, that attracted the Labor politicians. So right from the very beginning of Labor Day, uh, there was this conflict. And the very first one, under the auspices of Labor Day, there were actually two events. Um, And in a sense, this set the pattern for the rest of the history, which one could argue still uh, exists today. Oh, definitely, yes. Uh, Isn't it uh, uncanny? Some of the things that you're talking about is... uh, is, uh, Still, well, not maybe still happening, has returned. Um, yeah, in a sense, the pattern was set in the early 20s when lay when when the, the shift to the name Labor Day first kicked off. Um, but in 1930, um, the situation in a sense was reversed because if you recall, uh, the story of 1920 21 was about um, the Trades Hall Council being the progressive body, um, being opposed by other conservative bodies within the union movement that were very closely aligned with the Labor Party. Well, in 1930 the situation was reversed, so you had the Trades Hall Council, by then renamed the Trades and Labor Council, uh, still controlling Labor Day, but by now it had become the Conservative body, uh, closely uh, allied to the to the Queensland Labor government uh, at the time. Um, and by then the perceived threat uh, came from the Communist Party and the unions with communist leaderships. That year, 1930, a communist contingent marched through the city um, intend, intending to join up with the main Labor Day procession um, and the Labor government set the, the cops on them uh, with batons and four um, members of the communist contingent were arrested and charged with disrupting the peace. Jeff, other than the police side of things... yeah. That happened in Sydney on Saturday, okay. where there was a second uh, movement, the May Day One movement, that is dominated by uh, uh, communist leaders of the trade union movement down there, and they uh, commandeered their own uh, march and then joined in with all the others. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. extraordinary how, you know, there's uh, uh, this discussion has been fantastic because... Maybe I could use an easy, easy phrase here and say we haven't learnt from history. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. So, nineteen thirty, um, communist contingent um, intent on joining the main parade, set upon by police with batons. Uh, four members of that contingent charged with disrupting the uh, the peace. So, um, and and this was a period of heightened class struggle. Um, Remember, 1930 is is around the height of the Depression. 
A lot of those workers in the communist contingent, contingent were unemployed workers and the Communist Party played a very significant role in organising unemployed workers. Um, and they were you know, making demands against the state Labor government around support for uh, the unemployed. And the so irony. Sorry, you've seen Jackson and I look at each other. <laughs> the ironies here is, is amazing. Yeah. So that's 1930. In 1931, uh, it happens again. Communists were set upon by cops when they attempted to march on, on May Day, on the 1st of May, um, which, which, which was, again, separate. The main, the main parade was on the third, three days later. Um, but when communists attempted to march on, lab, on May Day, 1st of May, they were again set upon by the police. Um, so I want to leap forward now to 1948 um, because the same thing... Uh, that would be the height of union membership in Iran yeah, after right. the war, so yeah? That's right. That, that period in the post-war era is the height of union membership, but it's also the beginnings of the Cold War. Um, and this is the most dramatic split of all in the history of Labor Day in, uh, in Queensland. In 1948, the Hanlon Labor government and the, the unions allied to it threatened to refuse to join the march if the TLC, which was by then uh, led by uh, communists and left Labourite um, uh, trade unionists. So the Hanlon Labor government and the right-wing unions um, threatened to refuse to march uh, if the TLC organised Labor Day parade allowed the Communist Party to participate with banners and placards that were in any way critical of the government. <laughs> um, so the AWU was one of course the, 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 the union that was most heavily involved with the Labor Party and on the right of the industrial movement. Uh, the AWU General Secretary, Clary Fallon, declared his union would not join any march controlled by communists. On the day, a small contingent of AWU members did march, but not officially behind the AWU. And the event was boycotted by the Labor Party and the Conservative unions. In 1949, that boycott um, was even stronger. And then things came to a head in 1950 when the march permit, um, which had to be issued and approved by the police and so on, uh, was issued to the AWU-ALP-dominated Australian Labor Day Celebration Committee, which was a, a rival body uh, set up in opposition to the TLC's Labor Day Committee. The Celebration Committee was also given permission to use the exhibition grounds. So this effectively wrested control of the event from the Trades and Labor Council and put it in the hands of this Labor Day Celebration Committee, which was run by the AWU um, and unions on the right. The Celebration Committee um, uh, sent out invitations, so, so participation, and this might sound familiar to people involved in events this weekend, participation in the event was by invitation only. Uh, and the CPA, the Communist Party, and Communist-led unions were excluded. The AWU ALP Control Committee wrote to businesses inviting them to sponsor the march, assur oh. <laughs> assuring them that no communists would be participating. And I read one of the letters, and it said, As partners in industry, 
employees and employers with an Australian outlook understand and will do everything to combat the menace of communism. Therefore, we sincerely hope that those who can will respond to this appeal. Uh, so they were excluding the left and they were appealing to business for, for financial support. A last-minute agreement allowed a combined march to proceed, but acrimony erupted on the day when uh, Joe Bukowski, who was a stalwart of the AWU and secretary of the ALP-aligned committee, accused the Trades and Labor Council of reneging on a commitment not to allow communists to march behind their own banner. Um, and that year, the Eureka Youth League marched behind their own banner, and the U Eureka L Youth League was a, was a communist party organisation. So acrimony broke out again. In 1951, the Bukowski Committee effectively banned the left-wing Trades and Labor Council unions and the Communist Party from the official parade. The, the Trades and Labor Council responded by attempting to organise a rival march from Trades Hall. At least 800 police were mobilised to surround Trades Hall to prevent the march from getting underway. Um, and they, they couldn't march because they were simply, they were outnumbered by the, by the 800 police. police officers? Yes, they brought them in from all over the countryside oh, wow. um, and mobilised them to, to surround Trades Hall to prevent the TLC from organising their own... Would that, would that have been a Labor government in yeah, play? That's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. So yeah. this, is the this is the Labor government mm. um, of, uh, of the day. Um, and that kind of... That settled the issue from then right through until the early 70s. This, this alternative committee that had been set up um, retained control of Labor Day events. Um, it wasn't until the early 70s, really, that the, the Trades and Labor Council was able to, to regain control of, of, of the day. Um, so here you had a situation where you had an official Labor Day parade going ahead um, communist-led uh, unions, and that included a lot of unions at that time, as well as communist party organisations, were were prevented from joining it. And when they attempted to to have their own march through the auspices of the Trades and Labor Council, uh, they were prevented physically by the by the police mobilisation. So jump ahead to 1969, the Building Workers Industrial Union. Uh, they allowed student radical students to march in its contingent. So remember 1969, this is the height of the, the radical student mobilisation against the Vietnam War and military conscription and so on. Um, and there were a lot of radical students from the University of Queensland uh, who were trying to forge alliances with workers and they wanted to march on Labor Day and they weren't allowed, but the, uh, the Building Workers Industrial Union, uh, which had communist leadership at the time, um, allowed them to march with their contingent. And clashes erupted at the exhibition ground when students waving red and black flags heck heckled Gough Whitlam with chants of socialism yes, Whitlam no. And they attempted to intervene on the official platform. Uh, and consequently, this led to another crackdown on dissidents in the coming years. <laughs> so we, we get this cycle of, uh, of uh, left-wing criticism and then censorship or, in, in worst-case scenarios, police being mobilised against the left. Jump ahead to 1978-79. Um, so after the events of 69, a sort of loosely organised red contingent began to march at the back of the parade. 
and during the Right to March campaign in 1977-78, this became a major focus of mobilisation. Banned from the official parade, in 1978, some 12,000 left-wing people marched at the back behind a red contingent banner. And that contingent included socialist parties, Latin Americans, the Campaign Against Nuclear Power and the Civil Liberties Coordinating Committee. Uh, A request to have a trade unionist from Chile speak on the official platform was knocked back. Women stormed the platform, the official platform, and Megan Martin, uh, one of the radical students and also a member of the Communist League, spoke through a megaphone. They cut the officials, cut the power off. <laughs> uh, so Megan spoke through a megaphone um, uh, to to the people assembled there. The next year, the Red Contingent organised its own platform within the exhibition grounds, and more people gathered around it than listened to the official speeches. Um, when prominent, prominent socialist unionists, one of the, one of the prominent socialists um, uh, unionists who spoke at the Reds platform was later beaten up uh, by goons as, as a payback. Um, and in those, in those years, 77, seven, sorry, 78, 79, um, the Red contingent at the back was actually larger than the official contingents in the, in the parade. Um, and ever since then, a red contingent has marched at the back, except for this year when, again, a ban on outsiders was imposed under the pretext of COVID. Um, and for that history, 1978-79 and the, um, the red contingent, uh, I, I want to thank Ian Kerr because um, it's, it's not easy to, to tease out that history. Uh, and Ian was involved and others um, that I've spoken to, and um, so a lot of those details I want to thank Ian for. But that was 78, 79. Um, and so ever since then, we've, there's been a red contingent, as I say, but not this year. And, th- and now I'll come to uh, what Bill's been waiting for, 1986. Um, in 1986, um, 1985 and 86, there was a major industrial dispute going on in Queensland which you may be aware of it was the Sequeb dispute um, uh, electrical linesmen employed by the South East Queensland Electricity Board were sacked um, by the government um, for resisting an attempt to impose contracts individual contracts on them and uh, there was um, a, a major dispute involving all unions across Queensland indeed unions from interstate were, were involved in that the rank-and-file leaders of the Sequeb workers um, got to a point where they formed the view that the Trades and Labor Council leadership <coughs> was, um, in their words, selling them out. So when it came to Labor Day in 1986, there was quite a lot of tension um, before the thing even got underway because you had Sequeb workers organised to, to march um, and of course, again, it was it was a day controlled by the Trades and Labor Council, um, and there was a very angry feeling amongst many of the Sequeb workers that they had been sold out. So this kind of set the set the scene. Um, and what happened at the exhibition grounds that year was that um, um, 
support some of the Seek Web workers and their supporters tried to get one of the rank and file leaders of the Seek Web workers an opportunity to speak on the official platform, and that was denied. Um, and in in the ensuing heated argument, um, a physical confrontation erupted. So there was actually um, a brawl between supporters of the rank and file Seek Web workers um, and um, and those uh, from the the Trades and Labor Council defending the official platform. Um, it was quite quite an ugly event. Um, and in fact, um, I won't name I won't name her, but a, uh, a, a great comrade of mine still proudly retains the jacket from that day with the sleeve torn out as a memento of events on that day. Um, so there was again the situation where. Um, People were wanting to be critical of the Labor Party and of the leadership of the trade union, the official leadership of the trade union movement, um, and they were denied an opportunity to express their criticisms uh, through the through the official forums. Um, and it seems to me uh, this is again this pattern in the history, um, and the pattern can be summarised as the Labor Party versus its left wing critics. Since 1920, the Labor Party and its union proxies have continually struggled to maintain control over the event, so that the Labor Party's critics are denied a platform to engage with organised labour on the one day of the year when organised labour comes together. So despite Labor Day ostensibly being a day of working class unity, we can see the history of the event as a history of contestation a place where conservative labourism is the default position against which the voices from the left continually struggle for a hearing. And in some eras, as we've discussed, the censorship has been applied with the battens of cops. At other times, it is exercised more subtly. But it seems to me one thing is, is certain, as, as capitalism's crises, including the climate emergency, deepens, and the Labor Party is unable to deliver systemic or even reformist solutions, the conflicts around Labor Day and on Labor Day will continue and history will continue to repeat itself. Right, well, yeah, great segue because I'm, I'm about... To, you know about our award. Oh, yes. Yeah, the world-famous Scallywag of the Week. Well, we've just got a great segue into the Scallywag of the Week now. Uh, Jackson and I talked long and hard about this and... Uh, we decided already even before before you know we'd heard from you we decided that the ALP was going to be the scallywag of the week um, and uh, this is our spiel uh, the, yeah the ALP they they spell it L A B O R because they don't care for you <laughs> the ALP continue continue to pretend they are for the working class through the QCU and under the guise of COVID, they attempted to restrict the march to registered unions and the ALP as part of the greater union movement. On the day, Albo must have got a dropped off in his limo near the end because we didn't see him march down Wickham Street. But all of a sudden, he was at the end of the rally and at RNA for his speech and his photo ops. There is a growing movement that is spreading from comrades in Sydney, Parramatta, and as we talked about earlier in Workers' Action, to take back May Day for workers to celebrate on the 1st as it should be. 
Next year, May 1st, will be a Sunday and there is growing interest from Mianjin comrades to stand in solidarity with those who are defined by a class struggle. As a 4ZZZ is about amplifying the voices of marginalised and diverse communities, you can bet we'll be there. So, yeah, it's, um, it, it took a lot of thought into doing that, but, uh, yeah, the history shows that it's uh, repeating itself again and again and again. It, it's not, it's not Labor Day. Look, uh, um, most people know I'm a Green. Um, I, 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 I'm with them and I campaign with the, with the great uh, Ipswich branch. I even feel a bit uneasy about uh, the Greens marching in, in their shirt, you know. it's it, it should be... If you're a member of a union, you should be in your union, you know. It's it's fine for people like, you know, the politicians to come and and they can be at the back and, and that kind of thing in solidarity. But they shouldn't be bloody leading the march, for God's sakes. It's a day for workers, not yeah. politicians dressed up as workers. That's right. So, uh, well, you know us. We're uh, of the militant and fighting uh, variety of unions. Unionist and uh, yeah, there was a few elements of yesterday and and the week leading up to it. You know, um, that that was a bit. Uh, I'll just say maybe a little bit cranky. You know. And correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, but the MUA gave like our group an invitation to join that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, yeah. yeah so shout so out to the MUA. Yeah, shout oh, out. Solidarity with the MUA because uh, the, you mentioned that other unionists were letting in. Well, uh, yeah, the MUA um, offered to to let us. In. They did let us in in 2019 under the great leadership of Bob Carnegie, and um, yeah, the offer was there again, but. Uh, we were uh, looking at um, giving our uh, members and comrades a full look at, at everyone and cheer because uh, last year we missed out on seeing the CFMEU, which oh, yeah. is actually... They an, make a lot of noise. And they're, they're great to see. They're, oh, their red shirts were fantastic. Shout out to comrades in CFMEU. I want to get a red uh, uh, Rafu shirt now because they looked fantastic. And... Uh, yeah, they're not an affiliated union, so they're out the back, you know. Like, uh, um, so uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was a really, you know, it was a good day to show the members, uh, uh, you know, and uh, with Rafu and and with their uh, anti poverty network and respect. Shout out to respect. They yeah. were also not invited. Yeah, they, yeah, they weren't. Yeah, because they're not a registered union. So yeah, they were. Um, yeah, not uninvited and. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, showing these young comrades, you know, what the day and explaining things to them, you know, in a, in a, in a, um, in a sensible way, you know. So, um, yeah, it was a it was really, really, really good day. Right, well, thank you so much. That was a really good segment. We, we went over time, but I didn't care um, because it was just such great uh, listening, um, you know, when you think of, of, uh, of our coverage of the, of the day yesterday and... Uh, um, yeah, the the history of it was was fantastic. Have you got anything that you, you wanted to add on the end? No, I think that's about it for me, Bill. I, you know, thank you for the opportunity of uh, uh, giving some of this history uh, broadcast because um, it is it is important history and it's important uh, for workers and particularly trade unionists to understand uh, where this day has come from. Uh, it's come from the struggles of workers initially for the eight-hour day and then over time for other concessions and other improvements. And it's been part of an international movement since the beginning of the 1890s. Um, and, I, and, I, and I agree with you. I think um, 
we, we need to recognise the international nature of the day. Um, one of the things that I noticed yesterday, there was a very large contingent of um, Colombian workers. That was excellent. Um, they, they did an interview on, uh, on the show. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's the spirit of international solidarity that we need to revive on Labor Day. Um, we, we need people who are speaking from different perspectives about struggles that are going on uh, and so on. So, yes, I think um, it's an important day. And by understanding the history, we can understand why things like uh, the way it transpired this weekend occurred. Uh, this is not out of the blue. This is, this is part of a long pattern. Um, and the history helps us to understand that and... Uh, it helps people um, maybe look for other ways for, for the day to be uh, organised and, and for the day to be presented. Awesome. Great, great stuff. We've had two great shows in a row, uh, if you think of uh, yesterday as a workers' power show, and uh, um, to uh, on a Labor Day. So thank you once again to uh, Jeff uh, from the Lab Brisbane Labor History Association uh, coming in uh, on the first Tuesday of the month. Uh, oh, 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 sorry, I've I, I got to tell you, as as the leader of, of this, uh, you, you're, you're getting penalty rates for going overtime today. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. I was going to ask, but I wasn't yeah. sure. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. No worries. Thank you once again for coming on. Yeah, great interview. Um, I, 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 look, I'm going to have to rush through these events. Um, you can find out more online. Um, there's the free uh, the Medivac Refugees Rally at Brisbane I Immigration Transit Accommodation. That's this Saturday, May 15, 2021 uh, at 11 a.m. Um, and then there's a, a, the public meeting. This, this, is, this one is great. I will go through all of this. Public meeting. The housing crisis is here. Queensland needs a tenants union. Saturday, 15th of May, 2021, 1pm at Common House, organised by anarchist communist Mianjin, um, who are holding uh, this a public meeting as the first steps towards establishing a renters and housing union for Mianjin so that we can come together to discuss the issues uh, facing uh, comrades in this city as renters and begin the fight back. All are welcome and we encourage participation from the community as we discuss how we can build the power of tenants and communities for the struggles ahead. All right, we've got a couple of shout-outs that came in. Thank you for your feedback, uh, Brad, who said we had a really great show. And also uh, Rowan, um, who, who said uh, it's disappointing that uh, no mainstream media appear to cover the, our march or even... Uh, what's that? Or, or even... Yes, yeah, sorry, I'll get, or even report it. Thanks to the four triple Z for the live broadcast. Uh, thank you for tuning in, Rowan. All right, well, I better go now. We've already gone way past time. Thank you for tuning in to uh, Workers Power Four Triple Z. And see you next Tuesday. And we'll on. we'll see you next Tuesday. <laughs> in the square Big City The boys in blue are everywhere Big City 
the dogs bark Hey city They're keeping the city safe after dark Hey city The Minister for Corruption's working late Hey city What's the piece of the action in race, eh? Hey city No SP here, he's ringing in a state Hey city The blacks at our coon have to go Hey city To keep big business on the go Shares in Camalco. Big City. Who was the bad man? Who was the hit man? Big City. Who were the front men? Who were the big men? Big City. In the national scam. Big City Where to now from 84? Big City 